Hi there, my name is Willie Brusso and you're listening to Interview with an Artist, the Gallery Edition. I'm coming to you from the land of the Gadigal and the Birribirigal people, and I am forever grateful for their love and care for this beautiful country. Don't give up. Make art because you want to. If you believe in something, keep pursuing it. These are just a few of the takeaways from the powerhouse that is Alexi Glass Cantor. Among many things, Alexi is the Executive Director of Artspace and Sydney, and she's my guest this week on the podcast. Now, first things first, we've recorded this conversation in the grounds of the National Art School, so you may hear background noise, like we were literally sitting outside in the gardens. So there's cars leaving, there's people walking by, there are planes flying overhead, and you may hear some of that. You may also wonder, why did we persist? Well, Alexi is a hard woman to pin down. She was heading off to America the very next day after this conversation. And prior to our interview, she had just come back from Art Basel, Hong Kong. So when the window is open with Alexi, you take it. And I did. Alexi knew pretty early on that she wanted to work amongst the arts. And as her career developed, specifically with living artists. Her accolades include spending time as director and senior curator for Gertrude Contemporary in Melbourne and working in curatorial at the Australian Centre for Moving Image. Not to mention curating the bone-shattering performance of Marco Fusinato at the Australian Pavilion in the 2022 Venice Biennale. Currently, Alexi heads up Artspace an organisation giving artists of all disciplines, stages, generations and persuasions a place to make art, exhibit art and collaborate with audiences, as Alexi puts it. Along with her role at Artspace, Alexi is also the Chair of Contemporary Art Organisations of Australia and on the academic board of the National Art School. In today's episode, we talk about many things, including art space and the opportunities it provides for Australian artists, the exciting next chapter for art space with its redeveloped premises and funded studio spaces, and some fascinating stories on the background of the 2022 Venice Biennale show. I really feel this is an episode that you will listen to a couple of times because Alexi has just so much wisdom and inspiration and insight to share with us. Now, before we get into today's episode, one-on-one mentoring is open for May and June, and there are a couple of spots left in May if you are looking for some one-on-one tailored support for your artistic practice. I work with artists from a range of backgrounds and disciplines in a range of different pathways, helping them figure out the right next step for their practice. So if you're looking for some guidance, head on over to wilhelminarusso.com and sign up for a session today. Whilst you're there, you can also sign up for the monthly newsletter, Helping Artists Take the Right Next Step. It's called The Next Step. (laughs) It's one newsletter, once a month, written specifically for artists. Now, without further ado, let's hear from Alexi Glass Cantor. When did you know you wanted to work in the arts? Okay. I think I knew I wanted to be in the arts when I found myself in the arts, to be honest. Um, And that's a kind of a weird answer. Um, But I've always loved visual culture and I come from a family 
of people who weren't artists or in the art world, but my father was like a folk singing socialist, a primary school teacher who thought you changed the world by teaching kids to read. And I love that. Did, yeah, community theatre. and Our whole house was filled with books from kind of Welsh mythology to string theory to art history to science fiction. So I've always been a big reader and I really loved photography. Kind of photography was the medium of my generation, I suppose. And yeah. I love the way that now we have cameras ex as extensions of our hands on our iPhones. And I love the way that, you know, photographic and visual culture really shapes and shifts the line in terms of who it is we are as a society and what we want to become. And so I've always been interested in how the social, cultural and political could meet a form of cultural production that would be able to expand an idea of who it is we are. So how can we think about, you know, gender equality or LGBTQI rights? Or how can we think about land rights or the environment? Or how can we think about different ways of kind of advocating for new, new forms of acknowledging language or recognition or sovereignty that may pay respect? to different cultures and over time kind of create different conditions for equality, equity and inclusion. So for me, working with contemporary art was the answer and working with living artists and the artists of our yeah. times was the answer. And I got accepted into the College of Fine Arts in 1993 into a Bachelor of Art History Theory. And uh, I submitted a portfolio. I had an interview and I just finished high school. I was 17. <laughs> and I made terrible art. One of my art teachers <laughs> at high school said that I had no aptitude for art and I should just give up. Um, and so brutal. So brutal. Lucky, lucky, lucky I'm a little bulletproof. So <laughs> I still went to art school, even being told that I wasn't very good. Yeah. And the truth was I didn't make great art, but I spoke about my bad art very well. And I yeah. understood why my bad art was not great art yeah um, and that's okay but I really got to know other artists and communities and I loved going to art school and I really enjoy that space of production and working with living artists and hearing the stories that artists have to tell and then working for me being a curator was not something that you know when I went to university existed as an option there was no curator positions in institutions there was art space that only just opened when I went to art school the Art Gallery of New South Wales didn't have their first curator of contemporary art until Victoria Lynn in the 1980s early 1990s so there wasn't this kind of career path for the idea of the curator and the curator um, beyond the idea of you know the Latin for curator is to care care okay. of objects right okay. so you can, as a curator you can care for objects or you can be a curator at the SCG and care for the lawn yeah um, okay so that's, that's the etymology <laughs> yeah. Curare. yeah but for me the idea of curating really comes out of much more of like a Harold Zeman and kind of mid 20th century rethinking of how no space is neutral no context or position or collection or institution or museum or public or private space is neutral everything is loaded and encumbered with the histories of context and encounter and so curating became about how do we use different methodologies to apply to thinking about the impact of visual culture to bring new social cultural or political understanding to power to systems and structures of authority and to challenging the status quo and so i'm interested in curating not from a collection perspective not from a commercial or market perspective although i can work in both of those contexts yep. but i'm really interested in working primarily with non-collecting institutions and supporting living artists with the commissioning production presentation and making of 
artworks, ideas, objects or encounters in space or time yep. that can bring audiences together with new ideas and how you can collaborate with the audience and the artist. Yeah. And I see that audience as collaborators. Yeah. I don't think art teaches people anything yep. and I don't take a didactic or moralistic approach to art. Yep. I think that art is a collaboration where people over time can have visual culture infiltrate different aspects or permutations or ways of thinking and being to create more space for difference and inclusion. Wow. Oh my God. I love that. <laughs> I love that. Um, you're the executive director at ArtSpace. Talk to, and you're currently homeless ArtSpace. Well, you're not homeless. You're hanging out at the National Art School, but you've got a fantastic space opening up at the end of this year. Talk to us a little bit about the future of art space and what that new facility or home is going to enable you to do. Artspace is a 40-year-old, publicly funded, not-for-profit contemporary art centre that was, like many contemporary art centres, every state and territory in Australia has a contemporary art centre that supports through a mixture of exhibitions, residencies, research, public programs, audience engagement, different ways of supporting living artists across generations to test new ideas in the public domain. So there's an organisation called the Contemporary Arts Organisations of Australia, KO, of which I'm chair, and organisations like ACCA in Melbourne, the Australian Centre for Contemporary Contemporary Art or the Institute for Modern Art in Brisbane or Contemporary Art Tasmania or the Northern Centre for Contemporary Art in Darwin or the Perth Institute for Contemporary yeah. Art in Perth are all KO spaces, right? Okay. So art space is in that KO network. Okay. And, you know, a lot of these spaces came into being around the 1970s and 1980s. A lot of them emerged out of artist-run or alternative spaces yeah. that were established to kind of challenge the dominance of the two spaces in which artists had largely shown their work, which was either the market yep. or museums. And so these alternative spaces in a global context would be called Kunsthalers or, okay. you know, you know, Kunstvereins or, you know, they kind of come out of this alternative space network. Um, and really in the latter part of the 20th century in parallel with changes to the ideas of curatorship, not being about care of objects, but care for context and how ideas land in space and time, yeah. was these spaces that were created to show radical and expanded forms of contemporary art, moving image, performance, feminist-based works, culture linguistically diverse, you know, artists who challenged gender normativity, you know, all kinds of spaces that could actually foreground things that neither the market nor the institutions could pick up, but they could also be shown in parallel with yeah. painting, sculpture, and the history of material practice and making. So they didn't exclude those, but created a more expanded space for them. Yep. Art space was an artist-run space. It opened in 1983 in Randall Street in Chippendale, and in 1992-93, we moved into the gunnery which is our current home in Willamaloo. And we've been in the gunnery coming up 30 years wow. this year, which will be amazing. It'll be yeah. amazing to go yeah. back 30 yeah. years on. Um, but we've existed for 40 years. Yep. Um, and, you know, art space historically has occupied the ground floor of the gunnery building, which is a kind of 1890s bond store. We had galleries on the ground floor and studios on the top floor. And while I've been director of art space since 2014, we've made our seven non-residential studios free for artists for one-year residencies. Um, myself and my collaborator at art space, Michelle Newton, who's deputy director, she and I wanted to work with the board of art space to create 
a different way of thinking about the institution, not just as a model for exhibition making or publishing, but to create a multi-speed organisation that could respond to the expanded field of creative production and bring audiences on board as collaborators. And in 2015, we created a mission and vision for art space that we imagined over 10 years to help us transition to occupying the entire building, which was ever-changing, ever-challenging. Art space is a place where audiences can meet the artists and ideas of our times. Yeah. And, you know, what we did with that was we made our studios free, we created the ideas platform, we created a book fair, we do a lot of international co-commissioning. We've commissioned nine Australian artists with 17 peer institutions in 14 countries over eight years. We tour to regional Australia. This year I think we've got 42 shows across regional Australia. We've just had Tracy Moffat at Magnet in Darwin. We've got 52 actions opening at Wangaratta next week and we've got uh, Just Not Australian currently on at Museums of History, Museum of Sydney, if audiences want to come and visit that exhibition which is just toured to 14 venues across Australia. So we love connecting regionally, locally, nationally, internationally. Um, I'm very passionate about something that I think you might quote me on which is Australian Art is International Yes, Art. I am. I am going to quote you on that. <laughs> <laughs> and I say that because I think that, as you know, people have heard me say before, you know, I don't think, you know, just supporting emerging artists is a great way of supporting contemporary visual culture. I think ideas emerge at all stages of an artist's career and we always have to create spaces for risk and conversations that are unpredictable. The hardest thing in being an artist is not being emerging, it's actually being an artist. And it doesn't get That's easier. So true. It just doesn't get easier. <laughs> but it can get rewarding and it can while it continues to inspire and enliven and enrich your life is when you have a kind of capacity to make art that you truly believe you know is what you need to make um, I don't believe in one art world I don't believe in a pyramid shaped art world either I don't kind of ascribe to a kind of top-down approach yep I think that there's a lot of different like the art world is like a series of Venn diagrams you know it's like a series of puddles or you know stones in a pond yeah and you know street art graph you know feminist performance art, research-based, socially engaged art, painting, landscape, sculpture, you know, all the different aspects and elements of what it is that make up a comprehensive experience of culture yeah. kind of relate to each other. So I don't kind of ascribe to this idea that there's, you know, gatekeepers or people at the top. I just think that there's people who make great artwork, who make great ideas come to form and then they find communities to engage with and collaborate in shaping the meaning of an idea in space and time. Yeah. And so art space, coming back to that, <laughs> in 2018 we did a business case to occupy the entire gunnery building, which is located in Woolloomooloo, one of the last pockets of social housing in the inner city of Sydney. Really important. Sydney Modern was coming down the hill. We've got a great partnership with the Art Gallery of New South Wales and Sydney Modern, Michael Brandt. And I've been working over eight years now on a series of collaborations, working with community groups like Ozanam and Frontop in the Woolloomooloo area oh, yeah. on social impact projects. But we also have a partnership to build education and learning across studios and collections. When Artspace reopens later this year, we can't give you the exact okay. date yet, but we'll tell you that it's, <laughs> yeah. by the end of this year, Artspace it's coming. will be reopened. It's coming. <laughs> but Artspace will... Um, yeah, we're moving the entrance to the plaza of Forbes Street, so connecting up to the beautiful murals that came out of the Green Bands protests of the mm. 1980s. We'll be connecting with that Willamaloo community, connecting across to the foreshore. The new elevator that goes down to Capital Wharf Road from Sydney Modern will make it a four-minute walk. Oh, amazing. Super convenient in the entrance of Sydney Modern. <laughs> um, our entrance will be off the plaza. We'll be able to open up for performance, events and happenings. We'll have a beautiful double-height void, expanded galleries, ideas platform, and on the middle floor, a new 250-square-metre multi-use live art and performance and event space yep. um, that will be there for artists to embrace live art, film screenings, 
symposia, performance, book fairs. We'll have a kitchen for amateur through to professional chefs because food is really important if you're making art. And <laughs> we'll have, we drink COVID, we used JobKeeper okay, um, yeah. to keep our front of house and in-store crew on the payroll. They audited our archive of more than 35 years of publishing um, coming out of First Nations, LGBTQI, culturally linguistically diverse and a range of kind of independent artist projects over 40 years. So we'll have an accessible library and learning studio and on the top floor we'll have 10 studios that will be providing free to artists and we've asked the board to commit um, to 35 years of studios free for artists for one year residencies supported by curatorial advocacy. So we'll be able to support 350 residencies over 35 years. Artspace has never had more than a five year lease, but we've signed a 35 year lease, which That's is phenomenal. unprecedented. It is so phenomenal. Shout out to my amazing team. <laughs> <laughs> Incredible Artspace team. There's only, there's nine of us wow. and, uh, and the board. And, um, you know, it's really been a team effort. We moved out of the building in 2020 in um, August 2020, actually 2021. In 2020, we got told that we were being accepted for the first phase of the redevelopment of the gunnery. The gunnery has historically leaked, not had soundproofing and had no universal access, which meant that we didn't have equity or inclusion. So in the reimagined gunnery, we will now have an elevator and stairs, which sounds you know not so interesting, but <laughs> it's actually so. really amazing. They're really important. It's really amazing. <laughs> and the studios will have 24 seven access, 365 yes. days a year for artists. Um, you're going to get inundated for that. You I know would, that, right? You know, that's great because for us, when we made Studios Free in 2015, I think that it's really important that the team at Artspace who work there, the team is incredible. They all have master's degrees in art history or theory or they come from printmaking. They run alternative spaces. They participate on artist-run initiatives boards. Like a lot of my team are on boards. They do a lot of advocacy. They contribute to the sector. So they, with the three artists on our board, we changed our constitution in 2015 and we made a quarter of our board is artist-led. Oh, brilliant. So Daniel Boyd, um, credible artist, Taloy Havini and Makala Dwyer, are the three artists currently on the board and they participate in the selection with us. So we used to get about 100 to 150 applications for the one year studios each year. But I think because, you know, we closed in August 21 and kind of it felt a bit like a sinkhole. You know, we moved to National Art School. We've been amazing. Stephen Alderton and I'm on the academic board of the National Art School and I have been for six years. Yeah. Um, love art schools. I went to art school, went to COFA. Yeah. Um, but being here at NAS has been great. It's made me, you know, want to drink red wine and write poetry and live up regret. <laughs> it's all good. But um, it's been great to be back at art school. It's been great to be at art school. So we're yeah. not homeless. We've been yeah. in the context of production. Yes. But art space, you know, when we come back, now with Sydney Modern open, Sydney Modern will have been open for a year, new spaces that have kind of opened for, you know, artist-run initiatives, alternative spaces and commercial galleries in Sydney, the expansion of institutions in Sydney, the growth of powerhouse, you know, mm. all these things are exciting. I'm someone who doesn't think that more cultural infrastructure or spaces for art take something away from anyone else. I'm someone who thinks the more there is, the more they'll build, the yeah. more they'll support, yeah. the more we want, the more that people have opportunity to access culture, the more they want to participate because the more welcoming it will be. So I think art space will be fun. And when we open at the end of this year, we'll have a new commissioning project on the facade, the ideas platform. Our first exhibition will be our Jonathan Jones show that we premiered at the Palais de Tokyo oh. in um in December 2021, um, Untitled Transcriptions of Country, a really remarkable exhibition and one of our artist co-commissioning projects where we support Australian artists at a mid-career level to do a solo exhibition with a peer international contemporary art space or centre or project or biennial. Yep. And then we show that work back in Australia. So, you know, I really want to 
something that I care very much about is advocating for Australian artists to get out of Australia earlier. Mm -hmm. And I really encourage Australian artists to work with alternative spaces in other regions and states. There's a great network of regional galleries, things like Nunganala and yeah. Bundanon, you know, but Shoalhaven, you know, Maitland. There's really incredible projects in states and territories and the regions that can support artists to meet new audiences. I think tenacity, but also building spaces. So when art space reopens, it will be really fun. How does an artist get on the radar of art space? How does an artist get on the radar of art space? Yes. I mean, I see a lot of art. I know, yeah. You know, I, I see a lot of shows. I think it's not necessarily up to the artist to get on the radar of art space. It's up to art space to get into the world and okay. be looking at art. Okay. Um, myself and my team try yeah. to see a lot of exhibitions. We go to alternative spaces. Yeah. We go to different kinds of galleries. We're curious. If a show is happening, send us an invite and we'll yeah. try to see it. The, yeah. best, the best way to become visible is to just... Make, make the work. work. And if you have a gallery in your garage or you have, you know, a gallery at your nans or yeah. you know, something in your backyard <laughs> or you have something in a major gallery or an institution, it's all good. Yeah. We just want to see work. We just yeah. want to see artists putting art into the public domain and we'll come find you and send me, you know, hit me up on my Instagram, send me a message. I've got the show opening. There's a great new curated project that's just opened in Chippendale, which is literally a garage. Just saw a really good show there. So yeah. some great artists. And we're constantly looking because we're curious. Yeah. Um, and so I think the way that people get on the radar, there's no formula or strategy for being an artist. Yeah. The only path that's going to be right is the one that you take. Yeah. And I think the most important thing you can do as an artist is make art. Yeah. Um, and don't think that you need to make art for the market because if you try to make art for the market, it never sells. Yeah. You know, and I've seen brilliant shows not sell and something selling is not a measure of success. Yeah. You know, I mean, that's a really interesting point, right? Yeah, it's, it's really important and it, it takes a lot. You know, it's hard. I mean, something I just mentioned, 52 artists, 52 actions. That was an exhibition that I had in this idea back in 2014. I wanted to use Instagram as a new social media platform to chart socially engaged action across Asia with commissioning an artist a week from Turkey to Guam, which is how I think of Asia, um, to do this project. And I, I, I couldn't get anyone to believe in it. And I came to ArtSpace and my colleague, Michelle Newton, who's deputy director, she did 12 funding applications. She got the project and we got rejected on 11. And the Australian Council actually gave the project only 17% for artistic merit in 2016. Like that is a strong fail so good and I'm like that's an 83% fail right for artistic merit so, but we got some seed funding from copyright agency there, okay. and we used that money to do a kickstarter campaign yeah. and from the kickstarter campaign we asked people to give us $500 a week um, for each action because we wanted to pay every artist $500 yeah. for the week of their action because artists need to get paid yeah and that was our starting line for that project it to even happen and we were able to raise you know $15,000 in excess of what we needed to support every artist action and we didn't have to make the artist make tchotchkes or tea towels or t-shirts yeah which I hate from those kinds of platforms but yeah. actually we were able to get people to support commissioning and because people then saw that that got traction other entities and partnerships wanted to come on board and support the project and that project was never meant to happen in physical space but we ended up initiating it with Sydney Festival Wesley Enoch got it we did the first week of the first action was in 2018 during the Sydney Festival and it ran through to 2019 and halfway through we realized it could be a physical show so we did a physical show in 2019 and Thames and Hudson wanted to make a book so we made a book and then when COVID hit everyone was like what do we do about digital 
And Art Space was like, well, we have a platform. Yeah. You know, we created this thing called 52 Action. Yeah. That actually could be used to support Australian artists working in remote, regional, and urban Australia to do projects. Yeah. So we took, you know, what we needed and we actually paid every artist $1,000 for the week of their action during COVID. And the research we'd done by going to see artist exhibitions in alternative spaces, in artist-run initiatives, in commercial galleries, in not-for-profit spaces or museums, fed into a list of 500 names that my team and I put up on a wall. And then we chose 52 artists who again demonstrated diversity, inclusion, equity, intergenerational practice. And we were able to, you know, support $52,000 worth of commissions with that online platform because we'd already built it. But to say, I just say as a curator that that's an example of where I had an idea 10 years ago that no one (laughs) believed, right? It then took like four years to get someone to kind of understand that it was an idea that had merit. We still got rejected, but then we got some support. So we, we did it and then we built it. And then once we built it, we realized it was something that's actually really effective. Yeah. And it was kind of ahead of its time. Yeah. You know, not bitter. That's cool. What? <laughs> Lexi, what keeps you going? What keeps you <laughs> that's going? That's what keeps me going. Yeah. I think for artists, it's like that thing, which is like, just because someone says it's not a good idea doesn't mean it isn't. Yeah. And just because you don't think that there's a space or a context for you doesn't mean there isn't you know really try to find your communities find your people find an audience don't think that because you're not recognized by one segment of a particular community or section of an expanded kind of cultural infrastructure that your work doesn't have meaning impact or value it does yeah it's just like build capacity in the spaces that have relevance to what's around you and then through time reach out further and further and further yeah and you know, I do. I have to do it as well. Yeah. You know, I have days where I get told, you know, my year 12 art teacher who said, give up, you've got no aptitude or You're like, 52 watch me. only has 17% <laughs> artistic merit. And I'm like, all right, sure. <laughs> so it's it's not, you know, over time, I'm, I'm a relatively established curator now yep. um, and director and relatively experienced with more than 25 years doing this. So I know that what I have to draw on is my resilience and passion. And for me, I never let myself get dejected or bitter and I try not to think, if I get a setback, I try not to take it personally. I just try to kind of rack it up to experience, understand where maybe I could learn something and yeah. be open. I think that for me, contemporary art is about, I don't, I'm not a curator who thinks about curating as a form of connoisseurship. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think that I curate shows with what I think of as the best artists in order to prove my excellent taste. Um, I'm someone who likes to learn from art. Yeah. At the Art Space program, we say that we should have a program where we don't think we're necessarily going to like every exhibition we do, but we should respect every exhibition we do. Mm-hmm. And we should try to learn from the exhibitions and projects that we do to meet works or artists or ideas that we didn't think sat into our vocabulary or a particular set of interests and then challenge ourselves to expand those. So I learn from art and artists all the time and I learn from audiences because they ask questions that make me feel uncomfortable and I have to answer them ethically in terms of what I need to do to represent the integrity of the artist and the work. And and I enjoy that challenge. So for me, I, I maintain my passion and drive for this by constantly learning and I don't work towards sustainability I work towards resilience yeah, and, okay. and I work towards, you know, thinking that this is something I just want to keep doing every day of my life and everything I do in my life is part of this. Um, every sunset, every walk down every urban street. Oh my God, every flight, every you are flight. a woman <laughs> on the move. You know, well, it's such a privilege, you know, travel, my, my family never had the money or resources to travel. You know, our generation, my generation was one of the first to have affordable airfares. I'm aware of the 
um, environmental impact of travel as well. Um, and I, but I do think it is really important. Australia is a continent the size of North America without Alaska, with a population of New York State or Seoul or Karachi. Um, if we were one city, we'd be one of the world's greatest cultural cities. The number of state institutions, museums, foundations, not-for-profits, private collections, commercial galleries, art fairs, alternative spaces, artist-run initiatives and magazines, podcasts that we support is remarkable. At 23 million people, if we were one city, we'd be in the most fuck-off cultural city in the world. We just happen to be, you know... Spread out. Spread out over what is one of the most, you know, ancient, enduring, you know, cultures. Yeah. You know, that still exists, I mean, enduring cultures. I mean, more than 300 languages, nations and states. Yeah. Sovereignty never ceded. Yeah. The unceded sovereign lands of First Nations and Aboriginal people. We are very privileged to live and work here. Mm. Um, we're very privileged to be part of a conversation that expands in Asia from Turkey to Hawaii. Mm. Um, and we need to participate in that conversation and be good neighbours. And my role at Art Basel as curator for encounters at Art Basel Hong Kong really ties into my passion yeah. for pan-regional advocacy. And then, you know, we need to be making sure that Australian artists are participating in global conversations, not because they're Australian, but just because they make really fucking good art. Yeah. And they have great ideas that yeah. can shift the line. And, you know, our First Nations artists, our diverse artists, our, you know, cultural linguistic diversity, our histories of advocacy and activism, you know, shape Australia to be more than just a place where we can talk about identity, but a place where we can actually talk about how we can transform yeah, the context we want of that our identity times to be. and what we want the world to be. Mm. Um, so yeah, I do travel <laughs> and <laughs> I, I go into the world and I try to make space for Australian art and I try to bring people to Australia. Mm. In my career, I think I've brought more than 75 curators to Australia to do research over 15 years to meet Australian artists, yeah. um, to support projects and presentations of their works to new audiences. And, it's accumulative, you know, there's so many people who have done incredible work in this space that I admire who, you know, have paved the way for me and I hope that I'll pave the way for others. And the way we create change is not with one thing, we create change through time and mm. we persist and it accumulates and it's, you know, with every setback you get back up, with every success you don't take it for granted but you learn and you move on and you take the next challenge and you push to keep on accumulatively shifting things through time. Yeah. And that's, that's how I think about this. So I'm very excited that Artspace has been able to shift through time. I worked there in 1999, 2000 at Front of House. Oh, wow. When I was finishing art oh, school, stop when it. I was finishing honours, <laughs> I was at Front of House at Artspace. <laughs> Did you ever imagine you would be where you are today? Um, you know, I didn't have a career path. Yeah, I just okay. knew that what I wanted to do was work with living artists and I wanted to work to make sure that, you know, the passion and interest and curiosity and... Um, work ethic I have could be applied to creating space. I didn't know what direction that would go. I couldn't have predicted this direction, but I'm really pleased it did. Oh my God. <laughs> I, well, I talk about like, so, you know. talk about not having career paths or plans. I mean, last year you did the Australian Pavilion at the Venice Biennale. <laughs> I mean, what, like, where do you go from there? Or like, how did... <laughs> I mean, look, I was with the artist Marco Fusanato, who's really amazing. I first saw his work in 2000 yeah. um, when I was an art critic for the Sydney Morning Herald. I began as a writer okay. um, because there was no curator positions for artists of my generation, uh, for curators of my generation. So yep. I actually began writing. My first ever published text was a review of the Profumo Affair for Dolly magazine. <laughs> that is so cool. And I used to write about skateboarding or club culture, yeah. rave culture. Yeah. I interviewed 
DJs or architects. Yeah. I used to write for the University of New South Wales paper, Fiorunka. Yeah. I was an arts editor for that, so I could go and interview yeah. people I wanted to meet. Yeah. Um, so I really, you know, for young and emerging artists, I do really encourage them to take up projects where they can meet people they admire mm. or, you know, I don't really ascribe to mentorship so much yep. um, in terms of a kind of paternalistic structure. Yep, yep. I think mentorship is more like when you form a relationship with somebody with whom, you know, they have a different kind of perspective or experience than you do and you can share and exchange ideas yep. that help to expand their field as well as yours. Yep. Um, so I went and interviewed people. I had lots of great mentors who I built great relationships with, people like Nick Waterlow, yep. who was amazing, formerly the director of the Ivan Dogherty Gallery and a director of the Biennale of Sydney. Um, and I curated the last show at IDG, the Ivan Dogherty Gallery at the University of New South Wales before it closed when Nick was unfortunately murdered. And, you know, he, he wrote a curator's last will and testament. He spoke about, you know, a passion and an ability yeah. to trust art and artists. Yeah. So, you know, I really love that. But I think that going back to where we were, the question was about... Like, where do you go? Do you like, go? All, like the, yeah. I mean, that's such a career heart. I can imagine well, Venice, that's Venice, such... I suppose to say, yeah, Venice is amazing. Like, it's, you know, to represent Australia yeah. at the Venice Biennale. But Marco, I met when I was a writer. Yeah. And, um, and he'd done a project with Thurston Moore at Saracotia Gallery part of who's from Sonic Youth, part of his MFTM collaborations. Yeah. And I thought he was so cool and hearted <laughs> that he'd think I was such a dork. I never want to be friends with him. Stop it. True. And I wrote this article that was really badly edited by the editors at the SMH. It made me sound like such a such a dork. And, and I moved, Do you still have the article? Yeah, yeah, do, yeah great. And I moved to Melbourne a few years. So I'd written, you know, I moved to Melbourne a few years later and I yeah. met Marco and uh, he didn't hold a grudge. He was like, you know, oh, he, was like, he, was like, he was like, he was like, you know, I've had worse. I was like, good on you, mate. And um, I wanted to learn about sound and, and I wanted to learn more about the field of experimental sound, music and noise. Yep. And I wanted to curate a show because I learned from art called 21 100 100 which was 100 sound works made by 100 artists in the oh. 21st century oh, so wow. sometimes I do shows that have themes like yep. parallel collisions the Adelaide Biennial or you know other exhibitions like just not Australian but sometimes I'll do these kind of encyclopedic kind of research projects as a way of kind of using research as a methodology for project and exhibition making to share knowledge yeah. about kind of broad areas of artistic experimentation that I think audiences might also be might interested engage in. With, yeah, yeah. So for Melbourne Festival, we were able to do 21100. And I asked Marco and another musician, Aaron Abachi, and Emily Cormack, who was formerly a sound artist who was working with me at Gertrude Contemporary, where I was director at the time, to curate this show together. And we pulled together a list of 400 sound, noise, and experimental music artists. We selected 100. Mona in Tasmania actually supported the publication for the project, and we were the first exhibition they had as part of their Mona Foma summer oh, festival cool. series. And, and we did this show. And so I learned from Marco a lot about experimental noise and music. And that project actually, you know, 10 years later, because um, so it was in 2009, 10, that project 10 years later when it came time to apply for the Venice Biennale in 2019, we actually applied in 2017 and we didn't get shortlisted. So again, I know artists apply for a lot of things. You're like, just feel, keep applying. And they feel really kind of crappy when they yeah. get the letter saying, you know, it was a competitive field. Yeah. Um, <laughs> You're speaking from experience. I, I get that letter too. You know, yeah. it looks, it looks, you know, yeah. if you're looking from the outside, it looks shiny because I don't put onto my social media, oh, damn, got a rejection today because I don't think that's actually useful. Yeah. Um, you know, so it might yep. all look like 
sunshine and yeah. kind of rainbows, but you get rejections, you get setbacks. It's just part of the course. It's just part of the course. We didn't get shortlisted. So in 2019, we reapplied and we were like, let's go harder. <laughs> like, let's go meaner, darker, like... Let's go really deep on let's this. Push like, it. if we're not going to get shortlisted this time, let's really not get shortlisted. <laughs> you know, let's really do it. All right. So we didn't think, oh, what can we do to make them like us? Yeah. We thought, what can we do that we actually really want to do? Maybe last time we tried too hard to be liked and we didn't even get a look in. So let's just try to do what we think is actually relevant. And we we submitted a proposal for a word that had an installation and performance, and we were nominated into the five shortlisted teams and then we got the call saying we'd got the job and I was at the <gasps> dentist. Oh my God, yeah, where were and you? I had to what? spit out and I was like, fuck no. <laughs> I'm, so, I'm sorry that I swear. No, so don't swear. Like, I mean, don't don't it's apologize. It's so fun. I had to spit out at the dentist where yeah. I got the call from the Australia Council saying we'd got the Venice Pavilion so life is glamorous. Life <laughs> <laughs> is glamorous. You know. <laughs> Still going to do oral hygiene, folks. <laughs> but we... um. You know, we got the gig, but yeah. then COVID hit. Oh, yeah, so yeah. December 2019, Marco and I took our only trip to Venice together. And then we were meant to go back in April 2020 and the world closed in March. So as soon as the lockdown finished, uh, the first long lockdown, um, and I was able to cross the border into Victoria where Marco lives in Nam in Melbourne where he has a studio, um, I drove down the coast road and, um, you know, stopped off for a quick you know skinny dip at B3 and then got down to Melbourne had dinner and went to the studio and we had two choices yep. we could either do a pack and crate compromise show and just accept that COVID was going to derail everything and take the easy path or we could ramp it and we had a couple of days and, and of course we decided to ramp it and we decided to do this 200 day durational performance so originally there had been an installation and performance but it wasn't 200 days but to do a performance every day for 200 days where basically if the world shut down, Marco could still go into the pavilion on his own and perform the work. And there was one camera in a corner. So we knew that we could broadcast the work. If the world was in lockdown, that work could happen every day that the Biennale was allowed to be open for him to go into the pavilion alone, save social distance and perform the work disastrous. Uh, and we knew that if the world was open, that we wouldn't broadcast, that we yeah. wanted to allow it to be in the room and we would just broadcast 30 seconds a day on an Instagram account, yeah. which is what we did. But, you know, the subsequent two years really, you know, required a lot of care. Like, you know, I said before that the, the Latin, the etymology for curating is curare, to care. And so I had to care for Marco. I had to care for the teens. Mm. I had to take care of mental health. Marco lived through the world's longest lockdown at 200 days, you know, which was the amount of time he was then to subsequently spend in the Australian pavilion. His kids couldn't go to school. He couldn't get to his studio. He was working in a spare room with a series of um, printers and photocopiers, taking photographs on his iPhone off computer screens, building the archive for this durational improvised performance. And, you know, there was a lot of big Zoom meetings with the Australia Council as commissioners and other stakeholders. And, and I think the way that you get to a project is as important as the project itself. Mm, okay. And so how do you provide spaces where different kind of everyone from communications, fundraising, audience engagement, production and presentation feel included on this yeah. journey? And I asked Marco to be very visible yep. to those teams. So Marco's in a high 
mental health, you know, risk environment, the world's longest lockdown, isolated, separated from his studio, unable to make the biggest project of his life and yeah. that he intended. Yeah. And I'm asking him to speak to 20 people every eight weeks about what he's doing. And he stepped up and he did that. And because we wow. did that, we were able to have the support yeah. of the Australia Council to achieve the kind of project that they've never done before. Yeah. And, and that was remarkable. And when we got there, it was almost a year ago next week that that project opened. And the first day that that operating system, which Marco had built with an engineer called Nick Roo, which was the more than, you know, 400,000 images on these hard drives. And, you know, basically we could hold one image per day or 60 images per second. The sound could go from zero to 120 decibels. And it was all just feedback. It was like this durational improvised performance, this composition that Marco was making with experimental noise because he, you know, he works with noise. He's a musician mm. who works with noise, but also a conceptual art. And, and the first day it worked, I literally just- I was going to say, did you cry? Yes. And, oh. You know, that first week, you know, he actually got COVID in Italy during install. He and his engineer both got COVID and had oh. to go into isolation. Oh. I was forced to go into isolation. We lost two weeks of our install period. We had never really spoken about that in public before, yeah. but happy to mention it here today again, yeah. because you have to, and we had no plan B. You know, there was no plan B. Oh, my God. I'd have been bawling my eyes out on that first day. I went for walks every morning and posted photos of the sunrise and kept going. But, you know, I had to be there for Marco. I had to be there for the team. Yeah. You know, and when, you know, we had one weekend over Easter last year to build the entire work that we planned to build over three weeks and then it worked and then that first week there's um i think i've been quoted as saying it was like marco was a teenager who got the keys to a lamborghini you know he was driving out of control (laughs) yeah but the work over i was able to go back as part of the project yeah and with the project extending for you know 18 months beyond when our contract was originally commissioned you know, we had negotiated that I would go back to Venice four times to be with him. Yeah. Because it is a 200-day performance. And yeah. with every group of invigilators who came through, I would come back and work with the team on the ground and support the artists and support the messaging of the project. So I got to see how audiences, and we had 394,000 people through the doors. That was the largest attendance ever for an Australian pavilion at a Venice Biennale. The last day we had four and a half thousand people in the pavilion oh you know my partner was helping to invigilate oh. you know the team which is there you know and marco had built this incredible relationship with the invigilators with the community of staff working in the other national pavilions he you know he actually is from the veneto his ancestors were several thousand years in the veneto he's first generation australia and he speaks a dialect that was an oral tradition that came out of contadini that were agricultural pre-subsistence farmers um, and the language of his ancestors is no longer spoken and it's only heard in nursing homes. His father was born in 1916 and he fought in the Second World War on the Russian front and he was shot and he walked home back to um, the Veneto where he met Marco's mother and they came to Australia where Marco was born and he grew up on the outer suburbs of Melbourne you know and got an interest in punk. He He spoke an Italian that wasn't Garibaldi's Italian and even by the Italian community standards you know he was at that time in a kind of racist Australia, Italians were wogs and spicks. And, but even in the Italian community, his family was, because of the fact that they spoke Bilanese, which was their dialect, okay, there was yeah. many, many dialects, yeah. that they were kind of frowned upon and, and kind of, you a know, different class demeaned. Or, they were, yeah, they oh, exhibited them as uneducated, oh, as, as farmers, as subsistence laborers, wow. as peasants. And so Marco didn't come again to making art. He didn't have like this incredible network of people who could leverage his career or help him do an artist statement or help him to sell work. He just made it, he made a practice. The work practice he wanted to make came came out of anarchist 
and punk and alternative systems and structures of thinking about power yeah. um, through both music and conceptual art. And he did that. And he's and you know he's come back from Venice and he's now scrapping around looking for projects because that's what happens. Yeah. You, know, you don't come back and yeah. just get everything. Yeah. You know you've got to come back and still go to work. I yeah. came back and I still go work. to work. And I think that's also something that's really important is that you know there's very there's some artists who who are very financially successful. They have careers and, and practices that you know enable them to have a very comfortable life you know in terms of that measure of value and success and and i, I love that yeah you know because there's lots of different ways to do it yeah um but then there's lots of artists who don't yeah and you know and that's that's okay too yeah you know and yeah. you've just got to find where you think you can make it work so you can sit ethically and comfortably in relationship to what it is you feel necessary to make yeah. and how you can create the right spaces and conditions and communities to help you support um, or collaborate or network to do that. Yeah. You know, and, yeah. and I think that's what Marco does. Yeah. You know, so it was great fun and it was one of, yeah, the most beautiful things I'll ever do. But. You know, it's only one thing. Yeah. You know, it's it's one story. And yeah. Marco and I are like, well, we'll do something else together again in 10 years from now. Yes. Oh, my God. I so look forward to it. <laughs> um, I could talk to you all day, but we do not have all day. So I'm going to ask you one last question before um, I let you go. The one that got away. I'm asking everyone this season, is there an artwork or an artist that you saw early on and whether it was price or size or you just delayed and you didn't nab it? You know, I, I was when I was a, actually, I don't know if I should even say this, but um, when I was a young curator, I was I, I moved to Melbourne okay. um, to be an assistant curator at the Australian Centre for the Moving Image when yeah. it opened, yeah. and that was my first kind of curatorial gig in a major institution. Um, and I made um, a pitch for an acquisition of Sean Gladwell films, including oh. Kick Flipping Flaneur, oh. which was two and a half thousand dollars and was declined by the acquisitions committee of ACME. And uh, I think it was five years later that that work sold for $80,000 on the secondary market. So I regretted a, that- That is I the was, one they got I didn't, I didn't get it up for that institution, but then if they didn't approve it, well then that's their loss. Yeah. But B, that I didn't nab it for, for myself. <laughs> I've known Sean since art school. Yeah. And um, I love him as an artist and a human being. and. I really wanted his work. I'd curated a show in 2004 called I Thought I Knew But I Was Wrong, a video art exhibition, video art by Australian artists that toured to Bangkok, um, China, Korea and Singapore. And Sean was included in that show. But yeah, I couldn't get that acquisition up. So that was that was one that got away for Acme, but then one that kind of always, you know, always irked me a little yeah, bit. Yeah. Because it was such a great work. But Acme at that time was really obsessed with digital and media art. Okay. And it was a bit of a cinema and media art cohort who felt that that sort of video art was lacking in... Um, it, that that, that, uh, that it's, its relationships to histories and understandings of media specific and cinema work was um, somehow not matching their expectations. Mm. And it was very hard to make a case for moving image of that kind, particularly video art of that time. Yeah. Things like the Kingpins and yeah, others yeah. Um, in that kind of institution. Yeah. But eventually it did come to pass and they did, you know, they have absolutely supported Sean Gladwell extensively in recent years and Acme has done major commissions yeah. with him in the field of VR and other formats, so yeah. good for them. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it sticks very clearly. Them, got away. Got away. Oh my goodness. Alexi Glass Cantel, thank you so much for your time. You've been so generous with your stories. Really appreciate it. Pleasure. Should we take that selfie for the yes, uh, Instagram? Yes, yes. Let's Thanks, do it. Really. See ya.